Aussies love discovering new restaurants, and Open Table is Australia's most visited dining reservation platform, with more than 1 million hungry diners looking for inspiration each month. On average, guest booking on Open Table spend 49% more than walk ins. Open Table's world class table management technology ensures your seats are optimized front of house to seat more diners, saving you time to focus on what you do best. And it doesn't stop at the end of a meal. Open Table's relationship management tools keep you connected with your guests, helping you turn first time diners into regulars. Visit restaurant.opentable.com.au to connect with your local Open Table restaurant expert to learn more. Open Table, empowering restaurants to do what they do best, better. Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host as always, Sean DeVries. Thanks so much for tuning in. Principle of Hospitality is here to disrupt current perceptions of what the hospitality industry can achieve in today's ever-evolving and challenging environment, and that's why we're so proud to partner with Chef's Hat, the largest family-owned and operated hospitality supplier in Australia, on this season of Poe. Now, for today, the team behind NOLA Adelaide, Alex, Joshua, Matthew, and our next guest, Oliver Brown, have joined forces with fellow brewer and beer lover, Jake Phoenix, to launch Bowden Brewing. As many brilliant ideas before it, Bowden Brewing was formed over over a few beers and six years ago with a few mates enjoying a few pints and thinking how they might be able to break the mould and chase their dreams of brewing. Bowden Brewing's tap room features 14 taps, every one of them playing host to products made by Bowden Brewing or in collaboration with other brands. The Bowden Brewing Kitchen is home to Massa, a restaurant headed by ex-restaurant Hubert and current Big Easy Group Chief Executive Harry Bourne. So it's a pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Oliver Brown, to chat about this great brewery. Hey, Ojo, how are you? Good, hey, Sean. How are you, mate? Thanks for having me back. Uh, Fantastic to be back. Now, if you haven't listened, uh, if you're a new-time listener and you haven't listened to uh, the previous podcast uh, with Oliver, you should stop this podcast right now. Go back to uh, episode one, two, three, really easy to remember, and, uh, and listen to that because uh, OJ is an absolute gun in the uh, South Australian hospitality scene. So it's a pleasure to have you back, mate. Um, let's talk about this new venture. Um, I've been excited to view it from afar and see what you boys are doing. Um, how did the idea for Bowden Brewing come about? Yeah, so Bowden Brewing finally, uh, finally opened. So it opened last week or, or two weeks ago and then got closed again, like so many other venues, venues around the country at the moment. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Bowdoin Brewing has been almost the the original idea and the original goal um, kind of prior even to NOLA. So NOLA opened back in 2015 um, and in 2014, Matt, Josh, Alex and myself were were talking about how to kind of how to start up a microbrewery. we quickly realized that the breweries and microbreweries were damn expensive and so we didn't couldn't couldn't really afford it then. So we thought, you know, why don't we open a open a beer bar and continue our love for love for beer mm-hmm. through that and, and that way. So yeah, Bowden Brewing's been 
on the cards and, and on the back burner since since 2014. Yep. Um, Alex Marshall, kind of one of the major partners, has has left his job as an engineer at, at Santos and has gone over wow. to pursue his yeah pursue his passion in in brewing. So it has been it's been a long term project and um it's kind of changed and and developed and grown and now finally opened in in the uncertain times of 2021. So yeah, yeah. Bowden Brewing's definitely been on the cards for a long time and it's been a real passion project and it's, I guess, given time for Alex and now Jake as well to hone their, hone their craft and hone their skills. So they've pretty much been brewing nonstop since 2014 and kind of getting their recipes and, wow. and everything all down pat. So yeah, it's allowed us to open with really, really solid beers from, from day one. Yeah. What, why do you think there is, you know, an explosion in sort of the brewery market and the distillery market at the moment? Obviously, there's really good tax incentives from the government to, you know, to set up these things. But I'm sure, obviously, that wouldn't have been the planning six years ago when you guys thought about this. So, you know, why do you think we're continuing to see um, a lot of different breweries coming through, a lot of different, you know, distilleries, especially gin, um, coming through yeah, the market? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, six years ago, we weren't even thinking about tax. I don't know. We were pretty, pretty young, probably didn't even know what it was. It was completely driven by, by passion. I don't think we'd looked at a balance sheet before we decided to open a, open a brewery. Um, but yeah, if you look at the American market, it's always a really good one to watch. Um, and we do tend to tend to mimic, um, what happens over there, maybe a couple of years behind. So back in 2014, 2015, where we're opening up NOLA, Adelaide, um, our craft beer and whiskey bar here in Adelaide, we were watching the American trend and, and the scene and what it had been. So back then, um, breweries were opening up in more of like a, I guess, kind of more of a startup or wholesale fashion. So they were opening them and they were looking to scale and looking to grow quickly and they were looking to sell out to other, other pubs and other venues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in that wave we had a very similar wave here. And in that wave, we saw the likes of Bolters and Pirate Lifes and Four Pines and these quite scaled brands. So mm. they were brewing mass. They would have been making no money because they needed to try and keep things at an affordable price and everything was going into, into growing the brand and growing the business. And then those have in turn been, been bought out by your large um, production companies or producers like your CUBs and your Lions, mm. um, they've bought out those brands to then try and monetize them. Um, exactly the same thing happened in the US. But after that wave, things kind of went to a super localized format, um, a super kind of like cultural fit, small venue in, in more of the brew, brew pub model. So mm. things went from this large scalable wholesale brand to stripping back and almost being the opposite concept where we'll brew for the site that we're in. Um, and it's all about brewing and selling beer in the same location. Um, and I think Australia is now going down that route. You're seeing a lot more localized brands where it's more less about wholesale. They might sell a few, a few kegs here and there, like odd ends and bits. And it actually drives a bit of demand and there's some excitement and hype around those products as well, because you can't really see them outside of their own venue. So I think that's a big shift of where the craft brewing or craft brewing market goes. It's a bit of a lower barrier to entry um, and there's more profit margins when you're brewing and selling on site as well. Um, yep. And then the tax incentives have 
now. Um, obviously, it wasn't the plan six years ago, mm. but they're now a huge, huge help. So that's allowing us to produce. I think it's taking about 160 grand off of off of our budget just to boat and brewing in what we would wow. have been paying in in tax. Um, I guess there was a small rebate prior, but yeah, we're still probably saving about 60 grand, which just allows us to have people there full-time brewing the brewing the beer without us kind of going backwards because i'd heard previously of these small small kind of micro setups where it was costing them about 300 350 bucks a keg just to just to produce because of the higher volume in labor so wow that's a massive difference (laughs) it's crazy it's going to make a huge difference and Mm. um the distilleries i don't know the business model quite as well but Mm. i would say they're probably in quite a similar um in a similar position they do tend to be more less cellar door based and more, um, more distributor, more wholesale based. Um, yep. but yeah, you can even see in the trends in bars and particularly in our group as well, we're pretty local focused. So we'd rather pour a gin from, from down the road than one from across, across the globe. So yeah. that's definitely helping the support there mm. as well. Did you guys take any inspiration from, you know, any of the beer halls or breweries, you know, around the country, or you mentioned obviously the U S there to, to give you guys some understanding of what you want to produce here? Because the, from what I can see, like what's happening in Australia with, with craft beer is it's sort of what happened to coffee, you know, um, last sort of five years, becoming super localised, as you said before. A lot of brands are starting to do their own their own um, beverages and that kind of stuff. Like um, who did you guys look to to get some inspiration for this? Yeah, we definitely looked, did look around the country and across across the globe as well. Um, there hasn't been as many of these small micro pubs around as yet. Not as many as um, I think we'll see over the next five years. I think we'll see a boom in this kind of, in this kind of format. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's some guys that are doing these kind of limited hype beers really well, more kind of reduced production and, and limited stock. And it's, you know, everyone wants to get their hands on it because it will be harder to get. So places like Range are doing that really well mm-hmm. um, in, in Queensland there. They've got a really good name and are doing some really good fresh beers. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that kind of beer hall or that um, brew pub model is definitely one that's starting to starting to take off and find its feet as well. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is really hard, obviously, because we're on, we're on audio, but like step us through the venue. Like how does it... How big is it? How does it look and feel when you when you when you come into it? Yeah, so for us, um, over the last six years, we've been very hospitality focused. So we've really, I guess, honed honed venues and what we think a venue should be and what we think the recipe of a venue should be. So mm. going through the design process and and the actual building process of the venue, we wanted it to be a venue that brewed beer rather than a brewery with with a bar in it um so that was really important for us so we're in the middle of um in Bowdoin's quite a highly dense population in in South Australia I think it's the most dense population outside of the CBD so um a number of I think it's going to be 3,000 residents within the kind of you know 100 meters of our of our door so it's nice. apartment and townhouses and um getting really developed now um so we're in an old converted um, warehouse it's kind of a kind of a shared space so nice we wanted to make sure that we were somewhere that you could pop down 
every night and grab something to eat and a beer um, and not feel like you need to go there for for an occasion or not quite as relaxed as some of the other other breweries. So when you kind of walk in, it feels like a small bar, I guess, like a like a local small bar. So you kind of go in. The downstairs area is about um, 200 square metres, I think. Yep. Um, so there's about a must be 100 just over maybe 120 square meters of venue space. It's sort of long and thin, um, long bar mm-hmm. with a full full back bar and 14 taps, kind of direct draw from a cool room. Yep. Um, so yeah, there's a big big plethora of taps behind the bar and plenty of local spirits and wines and things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're also home to home to Massa. So Massa is our food offering. The reason we went for a separate brand and didn't call it Bowden Brewing is um. We've been to so many breweries where the food is a second thought. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of just there and it might be, you know, not not the best offering or not what we wanted to offer. Um, yes. It might just be kind of quick, yeah, quick burgers or something something like that. So we wanted to make sure that our food stood up in its own right as being a, as being a quality offering. So that's why we went for um, a sub-brand, I guess, of, of Massa to kind of let it... Um, you know, have its own personality and its own mm. cuisine style. And if people wanted to go out for dinner, they could, you know, look at it as an actual food or an actual restaurant offering where they could pop down with friends and just happens to, to be connected to Bowdoin Brewing at the same time. Yeah, right. So you're sort of using it as a uh, as definitely a complimentary kind of thing and, and sort of different to how a lot of brew pubs sort of do it with um, either having their own internal kitchen um, or, or using food trucks and alike, like you're thinking, like using that sort of complementary focus of Massa, yeah? That's it, yeah. And we think the sub-brand um, allows it to, you know, show its quality as well. Um, so everything, the food there is unreal. It's definitely not your, your average brew food. So yep. it's kind of like Mexican-inspired, but everything's, you know, Australian or South Australian produce. Nothing's imported, like we're yep. milling our own, corn down to make our own house made house made tortillas from australian corn and all the wow. chilies are grown locally and we're making our own hot sauces so it's like quite a i guess sophisticated or well thought out offering yes. um and that could also in the future work as a bit of a bit of a test bed for other concepts too so if we decide that must is working well in its own right we can actually pull it out of the brewery and open a master restaurant um mm. and then put another another test another test in there as well. So it kind of gives us the, gives us the option to test concepts and they can move out without stripping part of boat and brewing away from itself. Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's really impressive. Do you, do you think um, Oliver, like obviously when you're on the podcast in January, we talked about, you know, we did that in stag public house. Um, you guys have had Nola for a while. You've got anchovy bandit. Do you think the experiences of all those different brands has how do you think it's helped you in regards with the boat and brewing concept a lot um it it helped heaps so Mm. over the last six years we've really been refining our our hospitality offering and our i guess our our secret source um and for us that was all around staff and training and we're really trying to been building this um we really want to be known as i guess the employer of choice um so over the last six years, we've been working on sort of like health and well-being and what we can add to sort of enrich the enrich the work lives of, of our staff. Um, 
the concept being that they will then look after the after the customer. If if you look after your staff, your staff look after the customer. I think that's a Richard Branson line, maybe. But um, <laughs> yeah. So we've spent the last six years building training platforms and and developing concepts. So what it allowed us to do was to pull staff from other venues that kind of know how we how we operate already, um, and then we were able to. I guess open with a really clear service style in mind as well. We weren't kind of a lot of the other venues on opening. We've been kind of finding our feed and trying to figure out what the, what the customer wants, not only from a product point of view, but from a service point of view, you know, yeah. there's so many different options. Are you table service? Are you casual table service? Are you at the bar? Are you kind of a weird hybrid? Are you, moving to technology like you missed the yums and, mm-hmm. and having people order themselves. There's so many options and everyone defines the personality of your venue. Um, yes. And it also defines your balance sheet in a way as well, because every different service offering has a different associated cost. So you need the revenue from each customer to cover it. You know, if you're going to have table service staff, you're probably serving maybe 20 person per staff member. You're probably going to need to spend per head of over you know, 50, 60 bucks a person to kind of have your margins, your margins working. So you need to figure out what your customers are going to be spending as well. So Mm. what it did was we didn't need to do this. We were able to say, this is what's going to work. This is exactly how we're going to train our staff. These are the platforms we have picked a few key staff up and put them in. Um, And then we've also screwed a few openings up in the past as well. So we're always really good at the branding and the hype and we can make sure people wanted to go that, the issue with that is on the first day we were full and everyone <laughs> everyone comes and yeah, if you've ever opened a venue, you'll know that mm. one thing won't print to the kitchen or <laughs> yep. you know, something takes five minutes longer than you think and then mm. your dockets pile up and you and you get stressed and you're behind and mm. then all of a sudden you have a one star Google review from your first day because someone's steak took longer than it was meant to and it's just <laughs> really demoralizing after such a big after such a yeah. you know big lead up into opening a venue, it's such a such a part of you, and and just to fall down on the first hurdle, or that's what it feels like, can really rattle a team. So we took um, our opening approach really really slow. Um, we did kind of two week weekends of testing. We did a staff and family mm-hmm. come in, staff from the other venues. We sent them all surveys and got as much feedback as we could. And then the second weekend, we just sort of opened the doors and told no one we were opening. And then by the third week, you know, on that first night people came in, it felt like we were a venue that had been around for, you know, a year or two. It was like a well-oiled machine so quickly. So Mm. yeah, we were very proud that we kind of took the lessons we had learned from the other venues and applied it in a way that allowed us to, you know, deliver an experience we wanted so early on. Mm. Do you you think, I think we talked about this a bit in January, but do you think now having such... such difference in the different venues that you guys have uh do you think it's given you the ability to obviously you're talking about sharing staff there do you think it's given you the ability to actually keep your staff longer and more engaged because you can move really high quality team members who are engaged with what you guys are doing around well-being who are training them well who are giving them good systems and processes you're actually keeping them as a longer tenure in the business now yeah a hundred percent it's been a, a huge ability for us to retain staff and there's been more career progression for people. And I think showing people career progression in hospitality is so important because people just assume that it's a 
secondary uni job, or at least they did. So if we have constant movement and constant career progression within the group and we can show people that, um, I guess it gives light at the end of the tunnel for people that are enjoying what they're, what they're doing. Mm. Um, it's also allowed us to have shared key resources like Harry Bourne, for example, mm-hmm. he's over the Yasu George stag and Massa. Yep. So that's allowed us to give a salary competitive to, to Sydney um, with the shared resources where previously we weren't, weren't able to do that. Um, so yeah, you definitely hold people. And even in these kind of uncertain times and lockdowns and things, it's shown you when we first opened Anchovy Band, it was like a six seater restaurant. We were doing, you know, about 18 grand a week was a good week. And yep. those kinds of small local venues have to be owner operated. Yep. You have to be there. You have to work 60, 70 hours a week to make your numbers. Your numbers work. You can't really pay a chef a huge amount because um, you just don't have the resources to do it. And just, you know, the revenue coming through each week's not enough. So, um, yeah, having a group and having shared resources allows us to deliver an offering competitive to, to a larger group and have the skills where you need them. Mm-hmm. Um, without necessarily needing every venue to be turning over a huge amount of money. How did you guys find that you actually got, you know, past just having, you know, the first venue? Was it was it the fact that you had more than just yourself on board or more than one of the other partners on board and you actually had some more ability to get some more capital and actually grow? Or was it just successful and doing the right thing and just being patient? Or sort of a combo. Yeah, approach. for sure. We never, uh, we never had enough capital. There was yeah. never, never enough money at the start. Like the way we opened Nola, would never recommend someone to to do it like that. Although it puts you in the pressure where you can't fail. Mm. You know, you have to make it work. So we'd maxed out credit cards. We'd spent, you know, all of our money. We'd spent more than than we had by the time we opened. And we were just luckily busy from from day one. But by mm. the time we went to Anchovy Bandit, Josh and I were working sort of across both. Um, and then Alex Bennett, our partner there, um, was sort of the owner operator. So he was pulling, pulling big weeks and we were working across both venues as well. So yeah, if it was me by myself, I definitely couldn't have, couldn't have done it. We just had a good team of passionate people that were willing to put in the hours to, Mm. to make it work. Um, and then we just shared our, shared our time between the venues. And as we've grown, things have become, easier um there's more partners and more people that can kind of jump in where needed and then you have the the resources to pay for i guess professional sectors whether that's marketing or or social media management all of that you start to be able to pull these resources across the across the group yeah makes a heap of sense um i only ask that question because so many people who listen to the podcast are listening to me talk to lots of people who are a part of groups and part of bigger organizations so i like to ask that question because knowing where you started from and how you got to the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth is so important because you need different things along the way right like it's and and uh, i think it's just a bit of trial and error like okay well i need this particular person to do this and then i can grow to that particular scale and bring on that part of the business and you know that kind of stuff so it's really really important yeah, for sure. I think it's um it's such an interesting one and it's ever changing. I think your mm. your best staff will probably be the ones from the start which have done that grind and that hustle. I think when people are employed in a essentially a nine to five and, and go from one professional thing to the other, it's just I don't think you'll ever quite get that, you know, that hustle you get from 
from grinding and making it need to work every every day. So things definitely change. Things become more more corporate, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's part of growth. You know, we were sitting down on on Monday organizing our org, org structure for the business and what it's going to look like as we grow and at what revenue points will add different different professional staff members. So nice. yeah, you uh you become more more corporate as you go, I guess. And I think that those those venues with owner operators and, and people that are grinding will always have that different heart and soul to them, I think. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about that org structure in the last question because I think that's really, really important to know where you guys are going. But I know we're I know we're taping this the end of July and we're obviously, you know, part of we're both in lockdown in our different cities at the moment. But how do you feel like the hospitality industry in South Australia is going you know, at the moment, OJ, because when we spoke to you in January this year, like it was um, it was actually really inspirational to sit down and have a chat with you and, and talk about how the industry was in South Australia right now. So how, how are you sort of feeling about it six months on? Yeah, I think the industry here is definitely, you know, finding its strides. I, th- I think it's doing really well. I think it's matured and maturing. I think it's quite a, quite a sophisticated um, hospitality town now, you know, that's so... There's a few kind of like smaller groups with that kind of three to eight sort of restaurant number mm. um, that are doing really amazing things. And we're starting to, you know, still continually draw talent in from, from other cities and they're doing such amazing, amazing things. And there's more restaurants like that on, on the horizon, like Jake Kelly from, from Bernens. I know he's opening something up in, in Nord here, which is you nice. know set to be, to be pretty amazing. And, um, yeah, I think the industry as a whole is is really growing up. Um, and, yeah, I have, you know, a lot of confidence in where it's going to go. I think once we get through these through these these hurdles and these lockdowns, I think you'll see hospitality and tourism as a whole, I think we'll have a bit of a bit of a boom and I think it'll be a bit like the swing era of the of the 1920s where people mm. were out and making the most of it and I really honestly think that we're going to see that in Australia and in South Australia in the coming in the coming year or, or two yeah yeah it's good to hear and I totally agree totally agree um my last question to you mate is um you know we we're just talking about that org structure like with with all these venues that you guys have on board now like what what exciting project are you looking to next if you can share with us because you're doing so many different individualized kind of concepts which is really exciting to see like what are you what are you guys looking forward to next yeah for sure so i think at the moment um as the organization we're looking to kind of split into two so one will be the hospitality operational business i guess hospitality operations where we'll open and run venues and the other one we want to start looking at um going into the kind of hospitality property side of things as well so we're just chatting to some people at the moment about buying our first commercial property um, that will split into, into a couple of hospitality tenancies, whether we take them ourselves or lease them out, we'll, we'll decide, you know, one, one side of the business might pitch to the other side of the business and see if they want to see if they're interested in, in going in for a new venue. But I love it. yeah, that's kind of where we're looking at the moment is to go into more property ownership, um, specifically hospitality. So what we want to do is we've been building these operational tools and, and training platforms. We're trying to make it almost our playbook of how to open a, open a venue. And I think, you know, I love the huge 
huge organizations like your McDonald's and how they've managed to deliver such a quality offering, mm. you know, around the world. And, and that comes through, through systems and processes and training and the way we're developing and building ours, we want to be able to skin a different face or brand on the same fundamentals. So that allows us to open a Yasu George or an anchovy bandit. They're completely different, different offerings. They've got their own personalities, but in the back end, the actual workings of them um, come from the same trainings and concepts. So yeah, that's how we're currently looking to split the two businesses. And then ideally if someone comes and does hospitality in one of our tenancies, we can, give them what we think is our our secret sauce or the recipe for success so we can kind of work with the people that are going to go into them and give them the tools to to succeed because i don't think that many people know the relationship between the actual property they're in and and how much value the business in it adds to that property great point so yeah it's kind of a double-edged sword for us if we can if we can give people the tools to succeed their businesses will succeed, but then that'll add um, capital value to the property in itself. So, yeah, we can, um, yeah, try and work, work and make both sides work for everybody. That's the that's the goal anyway. That's great, mate. I think um, obviously what the whole team is doing is such an inspiration and doing it, you know, for the right reasons. And I know that we've known each other for six months now, and it's just it's just incredible to see what you guys are doing and and doing it. Uh, with the industry in mind, you know, and with people people at the forefront. So um, congratulations. Um, Beautiful. Thanks, man. What, what's the best way that people can find out about Bone & Brewing and come, and come down and visit, man? Yeah, so um, Bone & Brewing's on, on Instagram. I think the tag is, is Bone & Brewing. Same with Facebook is, is Bone slash Brewing. Um, on my LinkedIn, I keep, keep everyone kind of updated of what's happening across mm-hmm. the group or I try to. Um, and then obviously we have the big easy group website, which has links out to all of our differing venues and their offerings as well. Cool. Oliver, thanks so much for being on the podcast, man. Great to have you back. Beautiful, Sean. Thanks so much for your time, man. Cheers. <laughs> thanks again for tuning into another episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you really enjoyed this one. As always, please comment, like, and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. We're making this content with the industry in mind, so we'd really appreciate you sharing along. Thanks as well to our supporter and the largest family-owned and operated hospitality supplier in Australia, Chef's Hat, where the industry shops. And if you don't know us at Pose, Sash, my co-founder from Principal Design, has one of the best design agencies in Australia. So if you're looking for anything around strategy, branding, digital design, wayfinding, and graphic design, then you can find them at principaldesign.com.au and myself at Open Pantry Consulting for anything to do with systems and processes to make your business run even more smoothly. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Chef's Hat for supporting us. And until next time, stay safe. Aussies love discovering new restaurants and Open Table is Australia's most visited dining reservation platform. With more than 1 million hungry diners looking for inspiration each month. On average, guests booking on Open Table spend 49% more than walk ins. Open Table's world class table management technology ensures your seats are optimized front of house to seat more diners, saving you time to focus on what you do best. And it doesn't stop at the end of a meal. 
OpenTable's relationship management tools keep you connected with your guests, helping you turn first-time diners into regulars. Visit restaurant.opentable.com.au to connect with your local OpenTable restaurant expert to learn more. OpenTable, empowering restaurants to do what they do best. 